Mr. Ames encouraged me to feel free to go overtime. <laughs> but I will try not to. Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you in Canada, uh, in the Toronto area. I really appreciated Mr. Ames' creative way of getting six additional minutes to his sermonette, that I've never heard of a split, split sermon or whatever it was. But now you see the nature of the rumors that come out of Charlotte, that we have this power struggle <laughs> as to who gets to speak longer than the other one. Now, it is a privilege to be here with you. It's hard to believe there's been five years, I think, since we've had a ministerial conference here in the uh, Toronto area. Uh, for me, it's always exciting to come back to Canada because my family, <clears throat> my mom and dad, used to bring my brother and I up here to Canada uh, for vacations about every two years or so. That we would drive uh, up to Niagara Falls, spend the night, then drive around the lake up 400 to uh, Barry and then up to a little town called Powassan, which is about, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 miles south of uh, North Bay. So those of you that are listening in North Bay, a special hello. We would stop at a little town called Powassan, make a right-hand turn and drive for about, uh, I don't know, eight or ten miles over a dirt road that was kind of like a washboard that bounced <clears throat> to a lake where we had some very pleasant times. <clears throat> It's good to be here with you and to see your smiling faces. Look forward to meeting more of you after services. You know, last Sabbath down in Charlotte, we had a very interesting announcement. We had a young couple that uh, <clears throat> had their third child, and the announcement was basically that mother and baby are doing well. Father is traumatized. <laughs> in other words, he was still in shock. <clears throat> Uh, which reminded me of a story that I heard in Ireland when I was over there that a Catholic couple uh, had not been able to have children. So the lady called her priest and she said, would you please pray for me? He said, I'll do better than that. I'm going to Rome and I'll light a candle for you. So he went to Rome and I guess lit his candle and he showed up then several years later, stopped by the house and said, well, how are you doing? She said, I have given birth to uh, twins and I just have given birth to triplets. And he said, wow, the candle worked. He said, where's your husband? She said, he went to Rome to blow the candle out. <laughs> now, you may be asking, what does that have to do with the sermon? <laughs> you know, basically this. We have to shift gears just a little bit. <clears throat> You know, there are millions of people today in the world that are, have been traumatized by all the things that are happening. You know, the inclement weather that we've had, you know, the floods in India, floods in China, <clears throat> uh, the fires that we've had in America out in the West. A lot of things are happening that people find very difficult to deal with. You know, the situation in the Middle East with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, <clears throat> wanting to take over countries, you know, thousands and thousands of people that uh, are not Muslims are, are trying to get out of these countries. In some cases, their neighbors are burning their houses down. In some cases, they're being decapitated because of the conflicts between religions, the conflicts between political parties. Many people also recognize, especially world leaders, our world leaders are not going around the world trying to blow out candles. They're actually trying to put out conflagrations. 
of religious and political tensions that are occurring all around the world. You know, many people realize that the conditions that we're seeing today appear to resemble the end-time prophecies that refer to the return of Jesus Christ. You know, we're not the only people looking for that return. A magazine in the United States entitled Newsmac Magazine has a special report available on the website about the return of Jesus Christ. And it mentions, in these troubled times, and I'm quoting approximately, in these troubled times, many are asking the Jesus question, will he ever return? Now, why do they ask a question like that? Will he ever return? When in 1000 A.D., thousands of people gathered in Rome on December 31st, waiting for Jesus Christ to return, but it didn't happen. About 1715, Isaac Newton predicted that Christ would return, but it didn't happen. In 1944, excuse me, 1844, uh, William Miller in the United States was predicting that Jesus Christ was going to return. It didn't happen. He said, well, it was a couple months off. And then a couple months later, it still didn't happen. Uh, in 1988, there was a NASA scientist in the United States predicted, wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Return in 1988, but it didn't happen. In 1999, some people were predicting Christ would return. In 2000, people were predicting Christ would return, but he didn't. And I think that's why Newsmax magazine asked the question, will he ever return? But Jesus said he would. Jesus said he would return. There's another question, though, that the article addressed. It says, what does this mean, the return of Jesus Christ? What does it mean for America? I think we could expand that. What does it mean for Canada? What does it mean for Britain? What does it mean for much of the Western world, where Christianity, so-called, has been the predominant religion and people are... concerned about the return of Jesus Christ. I think the article mentioned that 80% of Americans believe that Jesus Christ is going to return. But when you read through the article, the article really doesn't say very much. It gives you everybody's opinion. But when you're done with the article, you really don't know much more than you did whenever you started. Because they don't explain what it means for America. They don't explain what it means for other countries. They have a couple interesting quotes. They have a section by a page, actually, a whole page article, part of the article by Glenn Beck, which he makes this comment. He said, I absolutely believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. But then he says, you know, America is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. He said, America seems to be absent from end time prophecies, but it's obvious he doesn't know what's going to happen to America. Many believers feel that Christ is going to come back and judge the world. But there are also atheists who said there can't be a second coming because there was never a first coming. So Jesus is just a historical uh, fabrication. I don't want to talk so much about events preceding the second coming today. But I do want to address a couple of questions. Why is there so much confusion about Christ's return? 
why are we seeing the shocking social changes that we're seeing today? Where Western so-called Christian nations are promoting homosexuality as normal. Promoting same-sex marriages is something that we just need to accept and we need to get on the bandwagon about that. Why don't people understand what all this means for America and Britain and Canada and other Western nations? Why is there so much confusion? In the sermon today, I want to look at some answers that can be found in history as well as in prophecy that explain why we have the confusion that we have today, why there's so much confusion about the return of Jesus Christ and Why so little knowledge and understanding of what all this means for the nations that we live in today? I've entitled the sermon, History, Prophecy, and the Mission of the Church. History, Prophecy, and the Mission of the Church. Many people have different ideas about what the mission of the church should be. It should be conducting socials, being nice to everybody, Uh, helping the poor. But what is the mission of the church and how does it relate to these particular subjects? Why is there so much confusion about these subjects and why don't we understand what's happening today and how it relates to us and relates to Bible prophecy? The Bible gives us some very interesting answers. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the Bible gives us some very important keys that we need to understand if we're going to understand what is happening in the world today. Paul begins in verse 3, But if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine through to them. The Bible indicates the world has been deceived, Revelation 12:9, But Paul mentions here that Satan has blinded people today. They just don't see, they just don't understand, they're not connecting the dots. I think Mr. Weston gave a sermon some time ago about connecting the dots. The dots are there in the Bible. But we've got to connect these in order to make sense out of everything. In John 12, 40, I'm not going to turn there right now, but Jesus mentions the blindness of his age was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The blindness of his age was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy because he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. The blindness we're seeing today is, again, more fulfillment of the prophecies that we find in the scriptures. But I want to ask at this point then, what is it that many people don't see? What don't people see today? Because Satan has uh, fostered this blindness. How has Satan blinded and deceived well-educated, affluent nations that we claim we're Christians? We claim this is part of our heritage, but why don't we see and why don't we understand A lot of the things that are in the Bible, what sort of subtle tricks or devices has Satan used to blind the nations primarily of the Western world, but the so-called Christian nations? And how does this relate to you and the mission of the church? 
the beginning of the sermon, I'd like to talk about several devices that Satan has used, several arguments, several ways that he has deceived the so-called Christian nations today. The first device I want to talk about is the idea that the Old Testament is for the Jews. The Old Testament is for the Jews. It's it's basically irrelevant for Christians today. It was not intended for Christians. This is an idea. I teach a class with Living University on Old Testament survey. And I wanted to teach it. I asked Dr. Meredith if I could teach it because it needed to be taught. The last time I took Old Testament survey was 40 years ago at Ambassador College. And I wanted to get my nose back in the book. And so he said, well, why don't you go ahead and do that? So I've taught it for four or five years now. And it's been very exciting. I'll mention a few other things. I was driving up to Washington, D.C. a couple weekends ago, and I got a, book, a, 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 a course through this organization, Great Courses. And I listened to a series of lectures by a lady who is a professor of theology at one of the major schools in the United States. And she was teaching an Old Testament survey class. And it was extremely interesting because she was coming at it from a totally different direction. She says the Old Testament is just filled with great literature and beautiful poetry and fascinating plots. But she never discussed the lessons that are there. She never discussed the lessons that are there for us to learn from. She had a totally different take on it. She was filled with all kinds of information. She got to the end of the class, and she said, I've got so much more I'd like to tell you about all these exciting things. But she never once touched on the lessons that are there for us to learn. Very interesting approach. This idea that the Old Testament is only for the Jews has been around for quite some time. Oftentimes it's not stated. When I I didn't graduate, but whenever I, I joined the Presbyterian Church, I think I was about 12 years old, and we went through a series of uh, classes uh, that the minister taught. And then as we walked across the stage and were welcomed into the Presbyterian Church, they gave us a Bible, a little New Testament and the Psalms. The Old Testament wasn't there. The message was, well, that's not really necessary. You need to have the Psalms, you need to have the New Testament, and that's really all you need. Um, Didn't contain the Old Testament. The idea that the Old Testament merely contains legends and stories, it's not relevant for New Testament Christians. The Old Testament is about battles and blood and this, this, this God that's just angry at everybody. But the New Testament is about Jesus and how he loves you. And if you give your heart to the Lord, then everything will be fine. And that's what many people are told today. It's what many people are told. And this is something that has blinded people to the information that is there. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what we read from the Apostle Paul, who supposedly founded New Testament Christianity and did away with the law and did away with all these Old Testament things. If you read on your own 1 Corinthians chapter 10, first 11 verses, he gives one example after another, four or five examples directly from the Old Testament. But in verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul is writing to basically a Gentile church. 
in Corinth. Corinth was a big, bustling city. Now, these were not backwoods hicks. <laughs> they were businessmen they were men and women. They were dealing with ideas that were flowing back and forth across the Roman Empire. This is the people he's writing to, and he's telling them. These examples in the Old Testament were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the Old Testament is not irrelevant to New Testament Christians. It's not irrelevant to uh, non-Israelite people. It's relevant, very relevant. You know, Jesus mentions in Matthew 10, verses 5 to 6, you can jot that down, you should be very familiar with that. Jesus told his disciples, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that's an Old Testament concept. What is the house of Israel? It's the descendants of the, the, um, <clears throat> the sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And Paul, or excuse me, Jesus is saying, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You had to know who they were and where they were if you're going to fulfill this mission. You've got to understand that. You know, I talked with one of the leaders, one of the other Church of God organizations a number of years ago, and I asked him, I said, what are you guys going to do with the material on the U.S. and Britain? He says, we're not sure what to do with it. And he was in class with the Westons. <laughs> he should know. But he said, we're not sure what to do with it. Well, as Mr. Ames was mentioning in the sermonette, the understanding of who the Israelite nations are and where they are, and whether or not you're an Israelite by, by, you know, by blood, if you're living here, <laughs> you're going to be subject to whatever happens here. You know, there were probably non-Japanese around Hiroshima when that bomb went off. And the bomb affected everybody. And what happens to the nations that we're living in today, the United States, Canada, Britain, Australia, some of these other places, what happens there is going to impact everybody that's there. So understanding this concept, it's an Old Testament concept, the house of Israel, is an extremely important subject because it is a key to understanding prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and other places that talk about the Israelites and the rebellious Israelites and what's going to happen to these people. The Apostle Paul mentions in Romans chapter 11, you can turn there and study that a little bit later on your own, but he mentions the Israelites were blind because of unbelief. They didn't believe the promises and the prophecies of God, so they became blind. And God says, I'm going to allow that blindness so that the Gentiles may be grafted in. I'm going to put these guys on the shelf for a little bit. And then I'm going to bring in other people into the potential family of God. When we understand this big picture, it's very informative, it's very exciting. But if you'll notice in Romans chapter 11, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament when he explains this blindness. I encourage you to read it tonight on your own, maybe over the weekend. But Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Jesus is referring to concepts from the Old Testament. It's not irrelevant. It's very relevant to what is happening today. 
Another device that Satan has used to blind people today, Israelites and non-Israelites, is the idea that the Old Testament is just a collection of myths and stories and questionable history. In other words, it's just... It's really not that important. It's just stories and people find, trying to figure out who God is. But, you know, the Old Testament is more than just history. It's not just a list of names and places and dates and other boring things like that. The Old Testament was written and preserved for a purpose. It's been called a theology of history. A theology of history. In other words, it's the history of the relationship between the Israelite peoples and God. It's a history of the Israelite peoples and the relationship to God, positive and negative. But the Old Testament is a select history. It takes specific incidences, specific events that are recorded to teach us lessons. If somebody could ask you about your life and you could sit down and go for hours and hours and hours how you played in the sandbox and you did that and you did that and you did that. Or you could selectively pick uh, events that picture critical events, turning points in your life, and then record those so that you have powerful lessons to convey. And that's essentially what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament reveals God's purpose for the Israelite people, uh, his plan and his purpose for the rest of the world. Uh, It records a lot of very important information, and it provides a very unique perspective of why the world is the way it is. Many people have asked, well, how come America has this, this land and Canada has this land, beautiful land? I've flown over Africa a number of times, traveled there. Uh, A lot of Africa is like Arizona and New Mexico. (laughs) It's dry. Not much grows there. Then you've got the Amazon and places like that where you've got all kinds of mosquitoes, (laughs) malaria and everything else. I would fly back to Ireland and land there and you almost want to kiss the ground. Everything was green. (laughs) I remember asking an Irishman one time, I said, does it rain much here? He just looked at me and said, Sonny, if we could sell rain, we'd all be millionaires. (laughs) That's why it's so green. But why did Israelite peoples wind up in these places? It's all explained in the Old Testament. If you go through the book of Genesis, God made certain promises. Now, you've got to get the whole story. God began working with Adam and Eve The human civilizations that were established when they turned away from God, God finally, in Genesis chapter 6, had to say, that's enough. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to wipe everything out and start over. And then he began working with Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and Rebekah and then Jacob and their descendants. He was building a nation that he wanted to use as an example not because they're any better than anybody else. He wanted to use them as an example. Deuteronomy chapter 4. He gave them his laws to set them apart from the rest of the world. And his intent was that people would see these people being blessed and make a connection between the blessings and the fact that they were obeying God and that they would ask, well, how can we share in those blessings? 
how can we share in the blessings? And the answer was basically obey the laws. Just follow this way of life and it'll work for you. That was the intent. The Israelites decided the grass was greener on the other side of the fence. But they have idols and we don't. They can see their gods. We can't. Why can't we have a king like they do? God gave the Israelites that opportunity. And then the consequences began to build up. But this is what we find in the Old Testament. Exodus, you go through Exodus. I remember when I first came into the church, I started reading through the Bible. And I got to Exodus and I thought, what is the matter with you people? <laughs> God delivers them from, it, from, from ancient Egypt with the plagues and everything else, parted the Red Sea, and within a couple of weeks, they were making an idol again. And I thought, what? <laughs> what is wrong with these people? But these are powerful lessons. God supernaturally delivered the Israelites from Egypt supernaturally let's look at deuteronomy chapter 4 because this happens several times through the old testament in deuteronomy moses is speaking to the children the second generation of israelites that came out of egypt it was a generation that saw their parents make a covenant with god at sinai and then turn around and break the covenant and then having to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that generation died. Then, just before they entered into the promised land, Moses addresses them in Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you read the commentaries, it says the second law. It wasn't the second law. It was the second repetition of the law. So that the generation going into the land of Palestine or into the promised land would have fresh in their minds lessons from the past. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, Moses is addressing the second generation. He says, only take heed to yourself. In other words, remember your history. Remember how God delivered you supernaturally from Egypt. Keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach these things to your children. What he's saying is convey these lessons. Share these lessons. Don't let your kids forget how God delivered you. you know, I was reading a book about George Washington recently. It was written by a fellow who... I guess is the head of an organization that manages Mount Vernon. And he made some very interesting statements in his book. He says, we are raising, now he's talking about Americans, but my guess would be it probably applies to Canadians too. He says, we are raising a generation of historically illiterate children. They don't know their own history. And it's not just Americans. I remember when I was living in Britain over there, Prince Charles had had a meeting with his history teachers in Britain. And he said, if you don't know your history, you don't know who you are. If you don't know your history, you don't know who you are. And I would wager that many Americans and Canadians, people living in these countries, don't know their history. They don't know who they are. Who they are. Glenn Beck made the comment, he said, America's not in the Bible. He said, we just can't find it there. Well, we have published many, many things 
the booklet on the United States, Great Britain and Prophecy, or United States and the British Commonwealth in previous editions. We try to explain to people who we are, why our nations have been blessed so incredibly. It was interesting that Glenn Beck actually did a program here recently talking about uh, the Israelites went into captivity, the Jews went to Babylon, the Israelites went to, uh, to Assyria, they never came back, they migrated across Europe, wound up in Britain, and some of those people came over to America. So he's beginning to tell a story that we've been telling for 40 or 50 or 60 years. But this comment we are raising today, a generation of people that do not understand that they're basically historically illiterate, says we're not encouraging Americans, and I think other people too, to learn from their past. And that's what the Old Testament is. It's a story of the past that we can learn powerful lessons from. said Americans don't know much about their own history. You know, Roger Whittaker, if you're into his singing, did a song years ago. I don't know much about history. I don't know much about geography. I don't know much about the rise and fall. And I don't know much about nothing at all. <laughs> but he was looking at a girl. He said, but I know I love you. <laughs> and this is our superficial society today. History's boring. You know, there's no relevance today but it's, it's, it's extremely relevant because we are doing things in our nations today that the ancient Israelites did. And we don't even realize it. They went into captivity because of what they did. And we're not making the connection because these things are not taught today in schools. They're not preached about in sermons except in the churches of God for the most part. And even there, I think some people have some issues. But Satan has been able to deceive people because they don't know their history. They don't understand what is in the Old Testament. You know, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 20, in fact, in Deuteronomy, we're reading what is called Deuteronomistic history. And this is pretty much what you find in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, the essence of the covenant was if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, there will be serious consequences. And that is the essence of the Old Testament, how Israel was blessed when they obeyed and how they suffered when they disobeyed. Very simple. You tell your kids the same thing. If you've got a teenager and he wants to use the car, you tell him, Here's the keys, but it needs to be home by 10 o'clock. If it's not home by 10 o'clock, he asks for the keys again. You say, sorry. <laughs> it's not going to be available because you didn't follow the instructions. And this is the essence of what we find in the Old Testament. Deuteronomistic history. You obey, you'll be blessed. Disobey, there's going to be consequences. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, I think it is. And this is in the section where they're told if you disobey, there's going to be a whole series of consequences. In verse 20, it says, The Lord will send on you confusion, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to do. And we see this happening in America today. It seems like almost every decision that is being made down there 
goes off in a wrong direction. Um, somebody gave me a clipping here just now, but I saw it in the paper this morning. That uh, was a commentary in the paper up here in Toronto. It said something about, you know, America, the most powerful nation in the world, couldn't even start their own health care system and make it work. We're becoming the laughing stock of the world. What God is saying here, you turn away from me. I'm going to send on you confusion, cursings, rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly. Why? Because of the wickedness of your doings. You cannot say that homosexuality is normal. You cannot promote same-sex marriages where God says these things are an abomination and then call it, well, we need to tolerate it. We need to accept it. It's called marriage equality, where we're all equal. God doesn't view it that way. He never has viewed it that way. He's not going to view it that way. There are going to be consequences. But this concept, you're going to perish quickly. You might want to look up the word quickly in a concordance. Now, three specific prophecies in Isaiah. It talks about a wall is going to kind of bulge out and all of a sudden, poof, it's going to go. But Isaiah mentions three different times about a sudden destruction. Jeremiah mentions it twice. A time of sudden destruction is going to happen quickly. It could be the bottom falling out of the American dollar or something like that, whatever. It doesn't say what it is. It says it's going to happen quickly. There are going to be serious consequences of going off in a wrong direction. I want to look just quickly at um, a couple of things. In Numbers 12, 14, and 16, those are three chapters that cite three different examples of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. And the word numbers comes from the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was a census done at the beginning of Numbers and a census done at the end uh, where they counted the number of people in the various tribes. And this is where the number comes from in the Greek. However, uh, the title of the book in Hebrew is In the Desert. In other words, events that happened during the wanderings in the desert. The textbook we're using for our class, Old Testament Survey, with Living University is called An Introduction to the Old Testament. And the title of the chapter of Numbers there is referred to as Trouble in the Desert. <laughs> How the Israelites got in trouble in the deserts. And chapters 12, 14, and 16 are three specific examples. In Numbers 14, God had told Moses to appoint 70 additional judges in addition to he and um, Aaron and his sister who had been basically running things. And apparently appointing 70 additional judges upset Miriam and upset uh, Aaron because suddenly they were not you know, the only ones running things. So then they came up with issues. Well, Moses, you did this. Moses, you did that. Uh, Miriam became leprous. Aaron had some problems. And what God was showing them is don't be criticizing the person that I have put in charge. Powerful lesson, hard lesson to learn. In Numbers 14, they started complaining to Moses. You brought us out here to kill us. You know, back in Egypt, we had all kind of stuff to eat. Now you're going to wipe us out. 
we're going to elect our own leader. Now, here's democracy in action. Why don't we have democracy in the church? God said, look, I don't want you to do it that way. But they said, we're going to select our own leader and go back to Egypt. They wanted to choose who they wanted to be under. Not a good decision. Not a good decision. Then in number 16, you have Korah and 250 leaders in Israel. Moses asked them, you guys come up to the, you know, by the temple or the tabernacle, I want to talk to you. And they said, we're not coming. Who are you? You take an awful lot on your own shoulders. Who do you think you are? God told people, stand back, stand away from these individuals. The ground opens up, swallows them. And then thousands of people died afterwards that were kind of in their ballpark or in their pocket or supporting them. And again, God made it very plain. Look, this is how I want to work. This is how I want to operate. Don't try and do things differently. These are powerful lessons, brethren, that we need to learn from today. You know, we could have hundreds more people here today, but they would rather do their own thing. They don't want to follow one man. They want to elect their own man <laughs> and follow that person. Uh, well, but he's, a, you know, he's given advice by 12 or 15 other people. We're not following one man. See, we, we can't come up with our own ideas of government and expect it to work. These are powerful lessons that are relevant to us today. First Samuel chapter 8. The Israelites looked around. Samuel had some sons that weren't behaving. And they said, we don't need them. We want our own king. We want our own king. And then God said to Samuel, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. Again, some very powerful lessons. In 1 Kings 12 and 1 Kings 14, and then we'll move on from there. When the nation split apart into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Jeroboam set up idols in the northern kingdom to keep people from going back to Jerusalem during the holy days. He changed the feasts. We saw exactly the same thing happen in the worldwide church of God. They began saying, well, why do we have to have it? Why can't you know, people were saying, why can't we have the feast before school starts? Because <laughs> it would just be easier to do. And then it was, well, you don't have to come for the whole feast. You can just come from the holy days. And then gradually uh, these things were uh, put aside. In chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, it mentions that Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. And you read about the other kings in the nation of Israel. So they followed Jeroboam. So Jeroboam got the nation off course, and then his <clears throat> kings that came along later kept going further and further off course. They forgot God. They perverted their way. And the prophecies then in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, even Deuteronomy, basically say they went into captivity because they turned away from God. And the message today is the same things are going to happen to Israelite nations today. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, if you're living in these nations, it's going to affect us. The lessons of history have been forgotten. 
And this is the point I want to make. The lessons of history have been forgotten because they're not being talked about today. Those lessons are recorded in the Old Testament of what happened to God's chosen people when they forgot God. Now, we're familiar, I think, with the saying, if you forget the lessons of history, if you don't learn the lessons of history, what? We wind up repeating the mistakes of history. And sadly, that's what our nations are doing today, but we don't seem to understand it because people are being told today the Old Testament's not for us. It was for the Jews. It's not for us. You know, we're not Israelites. The Jews were the Israelites. In the class I taught last semester on the Lost Ten Tribes, I had a very interesting quote from a Jewish anthropologist in Atlanta. And he said, uh, he read a book entitled The History of the Jews. And he said, Abraham was the first Jew. Now think about it. <laughs> the Jews never came into existence until uh, Judah was born, who was a son of Jacob. You know, two generations later. But here is a scholar, a theologian, a Jewish anthropologist that said Abraham was the first Jew. He doesn't understand. Paul Johnson, a British writer, wrote a book on the history of the Jews. What he's writing about really is the history of the Israelites. <laughs> and then eventually he gets to the history of the Jews, but he doesn't understand the difference. You know, if God has called you and opened your mind, you understand that the Jews and the Israelites are two different peoples. I mean, you can be a Jew and be an Israelite, but you can't be an Israelite. I get this right. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you know what I mean. But this is part of the blindness today. Let's move on to something else. Uh, the modern Israelite nations have lost their identity. Now, the Bible tells us they would. And we're living in a period of time when we can see that has happened. You're back to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 26. Again, this is why people don't understand today this concept. Deuteronomy 32, verse 26 God is saying, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them, and he's talking about the Israelites, cease from among men. God said, I'm going to do that as a result of their turning away from me. If you look up in the Amplified and also the uh, uh, NIV version of the Bible, it says, I will dash them in pieces. It says, I will scatter them uh, apart. I'm going to scatter them. Apart, And the NIV says, uh, the latter part of that, I will blot out their memory from mankind. People will forget who the Israelites were. And the Israelites have forgotten who they are because they're not being told. That's part of our job to explain that. I mentioned in the beginning or earlier that God supernaturally delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And many of the plagues were designed to show that the God of Egypt or that particular God, whether it was a crocodile or, or frogs or whatever, was not powerful at all, that he was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. 
But the nation of Israel came into existence because God supernaturally made it possible. And what we don't understand or what we have never been told uh, or we've forgotten is that God did the same thing when he was establishing the British nation, establishing America, is that there was a supernatural intervention. You go back and you look at the history, it's all there. You know, we've written about this in articles that we have published. Others have written about it, but they've missed the, uh, the, uh, the spiritual dimension for the most part. You know, England would not exist today as a Protestant nation if the Spanish Armada had succeeded. If Philip II had launched this armada, it was blessed by the Pope. They were going to conquer England and bring England back into the Catholic fold. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And you can look at the history of it. God's hand was involved. God said that Ephraim and Manasseh would become dominant. For those of you that are French, the promise was not to Reuben. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it was. Uh, you look at what happened at Trafalgar, you look at what happened at Waterloo, and you look at what happened at the Battle of Quebec. It was the English that prevailed and not the French. I was checking that this morning on the Internet, and it said the Battle of Quebec, this is where Montcalm and Wolfe uh, fought, said change the destiny of a continent. It changed the destiny of a continent. That it would not be French, it would be English. If Philip II had succeeded, Britain would have been Catholic. Many of our values that America and Canada have been built upon have been built upon biblical values that came from England. Those values would never have come here if Philip II had succeeded. Our history would be very much like Italy or Spain, but it was like Britain because it was based on a different set of values. America was the same way. A number of battles in the Revolutionary War, or as the British call it, the War of the Rebellion, <laughs> these rebellious Americans. But there was time after time after time where Washington was, had his back against the wall. He should have been wiped out the very first battle they fought on Long Island. They had I don't know, 40, 50 ships of the line. Americans had none. The British had trained troops. The Americans had about 10,000 volunteers. First part of the battle one afternoon, they were getting mauled by the British. And then it rained. It stopped the battle. And then the fog came in. And the Americans were able to get across the, uh, the river to New York, uh, to New Jersey. The British came in the next morning. The fires had been burning, and the Americans were gone. But it was just example after example after example the Americans should have been defeated in the very first battle, but it didn't happen because God had a plan he was working out. Again, not because the Americans were any better than anybody else. God said that Ephraim and Manasseh would become dominant at a point in time. You can't look at a, the history of America, North America, without realizing God intervened at specific points in time, just like he did with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And again, that doesn't make us any better than anybody else. God had a plan. He wanted to use nations that would use biblical values to be a light and example to the world. It's very powerful stuff. But this is not being taught today. 
want to mention just one other battle at the uh, Battle of Yorktown where the British were holed up on the Yorktown Peninsula. The Americans had surrounded it. The French fleet had cut off the British fleet. Uh, <clears throat> the British commander realized, I'm trapped here. I better get my troops out. So late, late at night, he started ferrying troops across the James River, or whatever the river is there. The first contingent got across. The second contingent, a storm came in out of nowhere and blew them down the river. And then the third, same thing happened. So all of a sudden, all of his defenders were scattered all over the place. It was God intervening in the weather that made it possible. It wasn't the genius of Washington. It wasn't the power of the French. God made these things possible. But these things are not being taught today in our schools. They're not being preached about in sermons. As a result, the unique history of the Israelite nations has been ignored and forgotten. So we don't understand who we are. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 29. <clears throat> All of this was predicted anciently. When people make fun of prophecy today and they say, you know, it was only for their time and their place. But this verse says exactly the opposite. Deuteronomy 31, verse 29. <clears throat> Moses is telling the Israelites that this was not just for the people in his time. He's telling them, but this was recorded in the scriptures for our admonition today. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt. He's talking to the Israelite peoples. You will become utterly corrupt, totally corrupt, and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days at the end of the age. Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. At the end of the age, you're going to be in deep trouble. Now, in order to deliver that message, we need to know who he's talking to, why the message was given, and what is going to happen to the people who've turned away from God. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 7, you might want to read that on your own, talk about a time of Jacob's trouble. Now, Jacob would be the apply to the 12 sons of, um, 12 of his sons. But at the very last verse of that chapter, it says, you will understand these things. They're going to make sense in the latter days. In other words, at the end of the age, all these prophecies are going to make sense. They're going to come together in a way that's very obvious. And we're watching these things happen today. There's no wonder that we don't understand who we are and what's going to happen to our countries and we can't find our countries in the Bible because most theologians today and most preachers don't understand what we're talking about this afternoon because their minds have been blinded. I want to mention next then, and I may have to dip into uh, Mr. Ames' permission, <laughs> but hopefully not. <clears throat> How has Satan blinded the minds of modern Israelite nations that began on a biblical foundation? How has he been able to deceive nations that once recognized that we were established and preserved by God's supernatural intervention? You go back and you read. I came across a book a number of years ago entitled The Weather Factor. 
Now there's another newer edition that says it handles things very differently. But there were accounts during the Revolutionary War that they recognized that the fog that came in to uh, Long Island and rain that came certain times were just not natural. <laughs> they said, this never happens normally. But these things happened. The people at the time knew it. And I read a quote yesterday uh, by George Washington. He said, you know, if it were not for the hand of providence, America would not exist. They understood things were happening. You know, our president and some of the scholars that he listens to say, you know, America just happened to be at the right place in the right time. This is all accidental. It's, they're, they're just lucky. It's not lucky. When you understand the perspective from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible gives us a perspective to understand why the world is the way it is today. And without that perspective, people are not going to understand. How did Satan blind the minds of the so-called Western Christian nations? In 2 Corinthians 2.11, we're told there, not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Satan has schemes. He has devices that he uses. You know, and he's not real original. <laughs> he uses some of the same things over and over and over. The, the, the costumes change just a little bit. The plot is pretty much the same. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Mr. Weston went through this uh, in our meetings this past week. But I want you to just notice something. Colossians 2.8. <clears throat> Paul was talking to the church of Colossae, and he was cautioning them, warning them. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the, wor uh, the world, and not according to Christ. When Paul was writing this, he was dealing with heresies that were being spread around the congregations there in Asia Minor. But Satan has used the same things today to deceive our nations. Came across the books not too long ago entitled Ten Books That Screwed Up the World. <laughs> Ten Books That Screwed Up the World. Very interesting. Uh, the author is a, a professor, he's a writer, and I believe he's a Catholic person. But he's talking about ten of the worst books that have ever been written because of the impact they have had, especially on the Western world. And uh, I'll encourage you to maybe read the book. But the books were written basically by atheists, people that did not believe there was a God. They did not believe there was such a thing as right and wrong. They believed that human beings originally were amoral. There was no morals. They were just free to do whatever they wanted um, and that we should be free to do whatever we want to do. He mentions The Prince by Machiavelli, written in 1533, where Machiavelli was giving advice to potential rulers. He said, you want to be an effective ruler? Look good, look nice, but do whatever you want to do. <laughs> If you need to kill somebody, kill them. If you need to lie, lie. If you need to steal, steal. And that's how you'll stay in power. Stalin apparently had a copy of Machiavelli's book on his bedstand. 
I mean, you, you see the impact of these ideas and how they've influenced leaders down through time. He believed there was no such thing as good and evil. He said, you don't have to worry about conscience. The writings of Descartes and Rousseau, uh, again, were atheists, believed there was no God, there's no right and wrong, you do whatever you want to do. Morality is artificial. It's not natural. So good and evil are not natural. These are some of the ideas that have influenced us today. The Communist Manifesto, written by Marx and Engels, they were atheists. They believed there was no spiritual dimension to life. Everything is the here and now and the material. The here and now and the material. Uh, Darwin's, not Origin of the Species, but he wrote another book entitled The Descent of Man, in which he was talking about human beings are simply animals, and animal breeders know that you can improve their species by selective breeding. You get rid of the unfit, you keep the fit. He said human beings are the same. You want to improve the human race, get rid of the unfit. Now, Hitler did that. There were others that were doing that. But this is where these ideas have come from. Nietzsche, a German philosopher, the title of the book he wrote was Beyond Good and Evil. In other words, we just need to move beyond these concepts of good and evil and whatever feels good, you do. Whatever doesn't feel too good, you don't have to do. But these are ideas that have permeated our world today. I won't go into any others. But these are ideas that have been accepted by scholars today, that there's no such thing as good and evil. The argument for promoting homosexuality and same-sex marriage, well, that's just a religious concept. And as I think it was um, uh, Freud that said religion's a fantasy. Religion is just a fantasy. You make this up in your own mind. Therefore, all this thing about good and evil is just a fantasy. Now, the reason for spending just a little bit of time on this is that these are ideas that have taken root in our societies in the Western world. These are, society, these are ideas that are guiding people's thinking today. And these mistaken ideas promoted by these atheistic philosophers, they have become basically the pagan gods of our society today because we're following their ideas. We're following their ideas. And when you think about Deuteronomy 31, verses 26, 27, 28, 29, where God said, you are going to become utterly corrupt in the last days because we followed wrong teaching. Now, Isaiah, you want to look these things up on your own, Isaiah 3, verse 12, and Isaiah 9, verses 14 through 16, where Isaiah was predicting there, he says, your leaders cause you to err. The people in positions of leadership, the scholars in the academy, people that proclaim themselves to be religious leaders, progressive religious leaders, are going to lead you off in a wrong direction. Now, the Presbyterians had a big conference in Charlotte, uh, maybe two summers ago, 
and they were kind of voting in their congregation, should we or should we not approve same-sex marriage? And it was the leaders at their headquarters that were promoting these ideas and kind of encouraging everybody else to go along with them. This is the world we're living in today. The lessons of history, the lessons of prophecy that are found in the scriptures are being ignored today. They're forgotten today. And as a result, we're blind. We don't understand what's happening today. We don't see where it's going. We don't understand where it's leading. How does this relate to us in the church and the mission of the church? The mission of the church, as the mission of ancient Israel, involved more than social events. The mission involves more than doing works of charity. And it's nice to do nice things, but we've got a much bigger job to do. We've got a very powerful warning message to deliver and a very positive message of hope to deliver. You look around the world today, you see the corruption in governments. You've got your challenges here in Toronto. (laughs) We've got our challenges down in the United States. But other people have big challenges too. The people that seem to get in power are the basest of human beings. They get in power, they take what they can, they do what they can. We lived in Boston for about nine years. It was interesting, when a person went out of office in Boston, whether it was in the state government or the city government, they were in court the next week because they'd padded this and padded that and paid off this person, paid off that person, couldn't be persecuted while they were in office, but once they got out of office, they were free game for the lawyers. And this is, this is the story of human governments. We've got a very powerful message, a message of hope, that Jesus Christ is going to come back and set up a government on this earth that's going to bring peace and justice to this world. And we're commissioned to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the entire world. Mark 16, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel, God said, of the kingdom will be preached in all the world and then the end will come. And we've been striving to do that. We've been striving to do that for 50 or 60 years. We have a very powerful warning message to deliver. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. To explain what the signs would be that would precede the coming of Jesus Christ and encourage people (laughs) to watch what is happening. If you've not done it, I would really encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. We talk about this Ezekiel warning. Some people say, well, that's for the Old Testament. That's not for us. No, Jesus said to watch, so therefore you need a watchman pointing out to tell people what to watch for. Billy Graham doesn't understand these things. Mr. Armstrong did because he understood the identity of the Israelite nations. He understood the identity of Germany. He understood the identity of other nations. And we've got a very powerful message to deliver We need to be able to explain to the Israelite nations who they are and what is in store for them. Why have our nations been blessed as we have? Not because we're any better than anybody else. Because God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
He said, I want to give you these things, but I'm also giving you my laws. Those laws are not a burden. Those laws will set you apart from every other nation on the face of the earth. And I want you to be a light and an example to the world. These are not anything to play with. But we need to explain that identity. But because the Israelites made a covenant with God, they said, yes, we want you to be our God. We will follow your laws. And then God said, I'll bless you if you do that. And then we turn away. There are going to be serious consequences. If you give your child the keys to the car and he takes it out and wrecks it, it's what? I was just racing somebody and I, I missed the turn. And you know, but I'd, I'd like you to get I'd like you to get another car and let me drive it. <laughs> Are you kidding? Are you kidding? God has given us incredible blessings. He supernaturally enabled the nations to start and survive. You, know, you read about Dunkirk. You read about some of these other situations where God literally did intervene. And these things have all been forgotten today. We need to remind people, not just in the church and not just in these nations, but the people of the world. If you obey the laws of God, you too will be blessed. But if you're living in a nation where your leaders don't obey God, or you decide to go off in a different direction, those those laws are operating just like the laws of physics. I remember one time when I first came into the church, I was laying in the sun on top of the roof of the house where I was renting an apartment. And I was reading about God and angels and supernatural things, and this thought came into my mind. I wonder if God will save me if I just step off the, step off the edge of the roof. <laughs> I thought, no, I'd better not do that. <laughs> because there is a law of gravity that's just going to bang. And so we don't play with the laws of God, whether they're physical or spiritual. We need to show people that the lessons of history in the Old Testament are relevant to us today. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Part of our mission, too, is to function as an end-time Elijah, Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6. Where that end-time Elijah was reminded to remember the law of Moses and to restore an emphasis of the family, which the whole concept of homosexual marriage. It's interesting. These, these ideas come out of Marx and Engels. As I said, if you want to have a communist utopia, get rid of the family, get rid of private property, and all of a sudden this will materialize. This is where these ideas come from. Get rid of the family, get rid of private property, and then everything will be great. But we need to remind our peoples that the family is important. It's the foundation of any civil society. We need to recapture true values, get back to biblical foundations, and then things will begin to work. And finally, as, as an aspect or a mission of the church, Luke 1.17 mentions that we are to make ready a people prepared for God. Now, Mr. Dukach talked a lot about uh, preparing the bride, but his method of preparing the bride was traveling around the world, shaking hands and getting your picture taken with them. That doesn't do it. That doesn't do it. Preparing a people, preparing them for what? To reign with Jesus Christ as kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. 
to learn how to lead in a godly way, which we're trying to do today, to teach people God's way of life. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21 says people will see their teachers and their teachers will say, this is the way. Walk you in it. And to be able to say that with conviction means that you need to understand the laws of God. Listen to the sermons. Read what we write. Understand it. Internalize it so you can say with confidence, this is the way. You do it, you'll be blessed. This is not the way. You do it that way, there's going to be consequences. How do you know? (laughs) The lessons of history, the lessons of experience, the lessons of this book, it's all there. We've been called to be trained to become teachers and educators and leaders in the coming kingdom of God, to literally turn the world right side up. It's going to be a very exciting opportunity that God is calling people into his family. Israelites, non-Israelites, we're called to become spiritual Israelites so that we can reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. These are the lessons that we find in the scriptures. This is the lesson of history, the evidence of history. The prophecies are all there. The world doesn't understand today because the world has been blinded. Satan has been deliberately blinding people today. But your mind has been opened. If God has opened your mind to understand, are you thankful for that? Do you thank God every day for that? Do you see the potential that God is going to be able to use you for? To literally change the world one of these days. I remember a lady came up after a sermon I gave years ago in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She was on her cane and She says, that's why I'm in this church. She said, I'm going to change the world. (laughs) You know, she caught the vision. She wasn't embarrassed about it. She knew why she was there. Do we know why we're here? Are we thankful for the clarity of vision that God has given to us? Let's thank God for that. Let's work together, as Mr. Ames was saying. We've got a job to do to prepare to change the world.